Hey, listeners, it's Zach here, and I'm joined by Tony Rose. Hey, Tony Rose. Hi, everyone. And we're here just to preface this episode because, first of all, it's episode 100 of the Modern Classrooms podcast. So we wanted to just mention that and kind of celebrate it up front before the episode actually starts. Um, wow. A hundred episodes. Yeah. Holy moly. I can't even imagine. I remember being on the episode, like an earlier episode as well when we first started out. So this is all really exciting. Yeah. I think you were a guest on episode four and that must have been in like June of 2020. So yeah. Uh, you know, mainly I'm just appreciative to the people that listen because, you know, the reason that we continue to do this is because we have a pretty dedicated listenership and it's growing. So I really just want to thank all of you for continuing to listen, you know, reaching out to us by email, by Twitter. Um, it's just been so much fun to be a part of this. And, and I personally really appreciate the opportunity to to be able to edit it and be a, and be a part of it. Um, so thank you all for listening and, and for being here with us. Yes, we appreciate you so, 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 so much. Yeah. And um, also, we've been kind of teasing this, Tony Rose. You and I have been teasing this for the past several episodes. We've got some really big stuff coming because this is our first episode of season two. So, Tony Rose, you want to tell them a little bit about what's coming in season two and beyond? Yeah. So we have some exciting things happening for season two. You all know I'm a huge fan of expanding my knowledge and having more thought partners. So we are welcoming in some different types of partnerships that you'll hear from that are, you know, thought leaders in education or just an organization that's worth looking at and checking out. And so, you know, for this season, just know that we're going to have some really cool partnerships um, ahead and just to expand our knowledge a little bit more. Yeah. And so this episode, actually, this first one is with Catlin Tucker and it's going to be, well, I've already heard it. <laughs> I was on the call and I can tell you right now, it's fantastic. Kareem and Catlin have a great conversation. Um, but I also want to emphasize that, you know, our roots on this podcast, the whole reason we started this podcast was to talk with teachers and just hear from teachers who were trying out modern classrooms, super experienced with modern classrooms, modern classrooms, mentors, all classroom teachers. And we will still be continuing with those interviews as well. That's really our roots. And so while we're expanding a little bit, we're also going to stay true to those roots and make sure we still have teachers on the podcast who are implementing, you know, teaching day in and day out using the model. Yeah. And just, you know, just a reminder as well, we're still we're very much responsive to your feedback. And so if there's something that we're lacking, if there's a voice that we haven't advocated for or even put on the show, please let us know. I know that, you know, we started putting some elementary voices more in the podcast and there's been an ask for AP teacher voices as well. So we're definitely being a lot more intentional with all of our guests as well. Yes, we are. Those are on the schedule for season two. And we're super excited for it. Um, yeah, so do please reach out. Podcast at modernclassrooms.org is our email. Um, but let's uh, let's let them get into it, Tony Rose, Catlin, and Korean. Let's get into it. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. 
Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 100 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Just saying that um, gives me a lot of energy and excitement. I still remember years ago when we first came up with the idea of doing a podcast to be able to share the teacher's stories, our stories, implementing the model, scaling the model, supporting educators, supporting leaders. This is a really special moment, and this is a special episode. So I, Kareem Farah, will be your host today, and we have an absolutely fabulous guest and Dr. Catlin Tucker, who has had so much experience supporting teachers, leaders, and communities in implementing technology in classrooms, and really all stems from her own personal experience in the classroom itself. Catlin, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I am doing well, and thank you for having me. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Um, so before we dig in, um, and just for all the listeners, what this is going to be is just a, a discussion between Catlin and I about what it means to leverage technology in classrooms, why the Modern Classrooms Project has really powerful upside, and just pieces of advice we think are really powerful as teachers and leaders do this really challenging work. Before we get started, Catlin, I think it's really important for the users to understand your story. Every time you've told me your story, I find it to be so cool. Um, I see some parallels in my own personal experience before leaving the classroom, just wrestling with what it means to build a learning environment that's supportive of students' needs and leveraging technology in creative ways and you know, running into challenges and then finding successes and then arriving at a model that worked for me. So can you just give give the listeners a really nice in-depth overview of your journey uh, in education and then ultimately getting to the point where you are today? Yeah, I had a really interesting journey in education for sure. I never actually thought I would go into education. When I was at UCLA, I was studying to go into law. I thought I was going to go to law school and be a lawyer like my mom. And then I shifted gears kind of last minute my senior year and decided to pursue a career in education. Um, my whole family was shocked. I don't think they thought I was necessarily like teacher material, not the most patient person you've ever met or super nurturing, like you think of a lot of teachers. But I was thinking, gosh, what am I going to do with this English degree? If I don't go to law school, maybe I'll go into education. And I remember the first few years, maybe four um, years of my teaching career, I I had gone into education really wanting to create this vibrant classroom where students bounded through the door, eager and excited to learn. We were going to sit in circles and talk about literature and life. And I was excited about this career in education. And it took about four years for me to start to really question whether I had made an enormous mistake. I could not get students to engage in this work. They did not bound through the door. There was more trudging happening. Kids didn't want to engage in conversation or take risks. And I definitely felt like I was failing. I was failing to create this classroom I had dreamed about. I was failing to engage these students. And I thought, maybe I need to find a different career. And in that moment of career kind of crisis where I was questioning whether I wanted to stay in education, I got pregnant with my first child and I decided this is perfect. I'll take a year off. I'll be a stay-at-home mom and it'll just give me a minute to figure out what I want to do. And I very quickly realized there is a harder job than dealing with a room full of kind of disgruntled teenagers. And being a stay-at-home mom was that that work. It was 
incredibly challenging. And I ended up teaching online college level writing courses while I was at home with my daughter for some extra income and mental stimulation. And it was in that work as an entirely online professor where I started to become kind of intrigued by the power of technology for learning. I loved watching my students who were anywhere from 18 to grandmas in their 70s coming back for a degree. Um, I loved watching them engage in the online discussion part of our work. It, I knew they needed more support to get better at it. And so I was developing, even for adult learners, scaffolds and supports to help them navigate that online discussion space and watching them learn how to do it really well and thrive and have these meaningful conversations was really exciting. And so when my kind of 17 months came to an end and I decided, okay, I'm going to give education one more year. I'm going to give, I'm going to go back to my classroom and I'm just going to treat it like a laboratory. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to take risks. And if I can't turn the ship around this year, um, then I'm going to find a different career. So I went back in the classroom and the very first thing that I integrated was online discussions. So instead of sending kids home with reading and, you know, a page of questions, I would engage them in an online discussion space. And just like my adult learners, they needed a lot of support. They were not very good in the early stages of online discussion. But I had this moment the first night I posted my first question. I just sat at my computer because I was really anxious. Like, what will 160 teenagers say when let loose on the internet to have a discussion? And so I just kept pressing refresh on my computer. And the first three students to respond, like within 20 minutes of my posting that question were students who never talked in my classroom. And I just had this aha moment of, these kids want a voice in this class, but for whatever reason, they're not comfortable engaging in real time rapid fire discussions or, you know, engaging in some of those collaborative tasks I was asking them to do. And so it really, for me, was a bit of a wake up call. Like I need to find a way to allow different kinds of students, different avenues to engage in this work. And online discussions was kind of like the floodgate for me. It was so exciting to see them engaging in pretty high level academic discourse online. And so then I just started kind of thinking about at that point, how do I leverage the devices walking through the door with my students and, and create kind of engaging collaborative tasks around those devices. And I really credit my early work, not having a device for every student with how focused I always am on using technology to connect learners and foster collaboration. So I taught for another basically 10 years. I, I think I spent 16 years in my English classroom. And during the last few years, I was also coaching part-time and supporting teachers in other districts close by in implementing technology and starting to design and facilitate with blended learning models. And eventually I decided to work on my doctorate and went to Pepperdine and did research into blended learning and teacher engagement. And so all of that work is kind of culminated in kind of what I do now, which is I'm a professor in a master's in the arts of teaching program at Pepperdine. I get to travel all over working with teachers in, you know, all over the world around how do we use technology to really um, enhance and improve learning? How do we leverage these different models so that, you know, teachers have a tool belt of instructional models they can pull from instead of just a single way to approach every lesson? 
I love it. Callan, every time I hear your story, I get fired up and I'm going to warn all the listeners that I am a risky podcast host because I go on wild tangents. So <laughs> I listened to your story closely and I want to dig in on three big themes that resonated with me, both because I feel like I shared a similar experience, but also I imagine resonates with a ton of teachers. And I think if we can dig in on each of these three topics, it just creates um, some structure and ideas for educators to think about as they continue to pursue this work. So the three themes I found were one, you kind of recognizing the limitations of the traditional classroom and this sense of feeling like you're failing as an educator or that your classroom doesn't look like what you dreamed it would have looked like. That happened in the exact same year that it happened for me, year four of teaching, where it was sort of like I thought this profession was very different than what it feels like today. The second theme I want to talk about is then there's a moment of risk taking where you're going, hey, for this to work, like I got to take a risk. Um, and I think a lot of teachers struggle at that stage, right? Like, how do I take a risk? What conditions are necessary? What mindsets do I need to embody to be able to do that? And then the third piece, which I always think is is, is the most exciting, is then once you take that risk, you seem to have uncovered suddenly that student, students can be in a lot more control of their learning than you once thought and that I thought after the first few years I was in the classroom teaching more traditionally. So let's talk through each of these uh, one by one and then see where we go and see how much time we have left um, and then go from there. So let's first talk about the limitations of the traditional classroom and just like you realizing that this wasn't going well. What what was that, right? Like in, in, in a specific way, because I think a lot of teachers feel that and I don't know that that everyone knows what what about your classroom felt that way. And I, I have some ideas about mine myself. But like if you kind of took yourself back to that year three going into year four, what were you realizing was not working? I don't feel like anything was really working, if I'm being honest with everybody. It's and what was I think jarring and the moment where I was like, okay, this all needs to be like basically reimagined is I was teaching basically the way that I was taught as a student, the way I was taught to teach in my credential program. And I still felt like when I was up at the front of the room where I spent the lion's share of every lesson, you know, I wasn't talking at students the whole time. I was trying to engage them in discussions. I was trying to get them to engage with each other and do collaborative tasks. It was just like pulling teeth. Like I had to call on people to like share and students just sat in the, their desks staring in my general direction. And I feel like a lot of them were like, this is my job. This is what I do. I am not causing trouble, but I'm also not going to participate in any meaningful way. And I had a moment where I was just like, what am I doing? I'm exhausted. I recognized I was doing the lion's share of the work in the class. I was putting out the most energy of anybody in the class and I wasn't getting hardly anything in return. And I just thought, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Totally. You know, this is, I, I'm glad you said this because I think that feeling is scary for a lot of folks, um, especially, you know, it depends on how you approach the teaching career. But for a lot of folks, like teaching obviously was their dream from from a pretty early stage. Um, they invest all this time and energy and you went to school for it and you got your master's in it and you love the craft and you love the content and you love working with students. Then you wake up and you go, wait, the whole thing's wrong. <laughs> yes. um, right. And that's like freaky. You know, I, I can only imagine what it's like if you're a lawyer and you go, wait a minute, like all the laws are wrong um, or you're a doctor and you suddenly go, well, wait a minute, like 
all these procedures don't make sense. That's jarring. So I want to, I hope everyone knows that that feeling is, is intimidating and scary. Um, because a lot of times what you're given as an educator in those moments is these isolated strategies. And it's like, but hold on a second, the whole thing's wrong. So thanks for the graphic organizer. Not sure that's going to solve yeah. <laughs> the whole thing, right? And that, that feeling's really big and powerful. I think the next phase, though, that I think is really important, and I think is important, particularly in this moment, because I think we're kind of sitting here at a, quite a pivotal moment in the teaching career. Uh, you have a massive number of educators leaving the profession because they're just fundamentally fed up. We're coming off really challenging years with COVID. Um, there's sort of a semblance of a version of normalcy, although I'm very careful to kind of even define anything as normal anymore. But there was this moment where you walked in the classroom and said, time to take a risk. Time to treat my classroom as a lab. I vividly remember taking the Metro home in DC. It was my year four in the classroom. I looked out the window. I don't think I like blinked for 20 minutes. And it was this moment for me where I was like, I'm either quitting or I'm changing everything I do. Right. So that's why that what you said really resonated with me. But I don't know that a lot of educators feel like they can do that. Can you share a little bit about what conditions caused you to do that, why you felt secure enough to actually make that leap. Um, and, and I mean, maybe connect that to some advice for educators. Like what, what should educators think about and do, especially in communities where they feel a little bit of siloed from in innovation? Like what can an educator do and what got you to the point where you felt like you could really take that risk? Well, I'm really honest when I talk with teachers and like my any innovation, uh, any progressive stuff I did in the classroom was born out of desperation. It wasn't that I was this incredibly forward thinking educator. I was in a room with 30 kids who didn't want to be there, right? Like I love reading. I love writing. This is why I became an English teacher. And all I kept hearing was like, why do we have to read and write so much in here? You know? So like for me, it was just like, I have to figure out how to do this differently. And I think, I think there is a lot of fear around risk-taking and maybe part of why I wasn't fearful is I was pretty confident. Like if, if this doesn't work, I'm going to find another job. I can get into a different career path. I don't have a lot to lose because I'm not going to stay here if it doesn't change. I can't keep doing this work if I'm not feeling like it's rewarding and it's joyful and it's fulfilling. So for me, I just said, you know what? This is how I'm going to approach this year. I'm going to try a bunch of new things. I'm going to see what sticks. I'm going to talk with my students and say, hey, what'd you guys think of this strategy or this model or this tech tool? Like, let's figure out how to do this together. And that's something I had never done either is quite frankly, ask my students because the students are the consumers in education. And it blows my mind how infrequently they are asked for their feedback and their opinions and their recommendations. And so I would frequently come into class, I'd say, we're going to try this new thing. It might be like station rotation model. It might be a cool new tech tool. It might be a new strategy. And I'd be honest, I've never done this before. Let's give it a whirl. And then we'll talk about it and see what worked, what didn't, how we'll change it before we do it again. 
And what I realize now, like looking back, is what I ended up doing was starting to treat this room full of humans as a learning community that I was part of. I became the lead learner, but we were all learning together. We were all starting to take risks. And I think because my students saw me experimenting, being honest about failure, troubleshooting, and kind of iterating with their feedback it was a lot less scary for them, them to lean in and take risks and admit when they, you know, hit a bump or to face a failure and kind of move forward. And so it was this really exciting energy that began to build as I kind of approached my work through that lens of you're the lead learner, we're experimenting, we're refining, we're figuring out as a learning community how to do this better. And when I work with teachers, I see the fear paralysis a lot. You know, I'm scared if I do this, then this might happen. And what I try to encourage the teachers I coach to remember is yeah, it's fear is totally normal, but like, let's not have that stop us from trying new things. If we fear something, like we fear what students might do if we don't grade every assignment, right? What is, what's at the root of that fear? And like, let's be honest about it and then let's be proactive. Or I'm fearful about letting kids self pace or make key decisions about their learning. Cause what if they don't make good decisions? Well, it's like, well, then how do we support them at cultivating the skills so they can be responsible decision makers so that they can be those expert learners in a classroom? So I think it's not about not being fearful. It's about facing fear trying to understand what's at the root of it, and then proactively trying to kind of address what's at the root of those fears so we can continue moving forward. Yeah, no, I think that's powerful. I think one thing that I, I hope educators are feeling to some degree, it's a really tough time and a confusing time, but I feel like we are at a point in education where everyone's sort of like, things haven't been working, so let's try stuff. I do think that that's a, a more of a sentiment than ever before. And I hope educate that gives educators a little bit of a feeling of like, look, if I was afraid to take risks before, now is a good time to do it. Because students, you know, needs are so varied. There's not a clear pathway for what teaching and learning should theoretically look like necessarily, but people are frustrated and know that traditional forms of instruction didn't really work. So in environments where you felt like you were really going against the grain to do new innovative models like the modern classrooms approach, I actually think the appetite for this type of stuff is much bigger. Ultimately, for me, when it come, came to taking risks, you know, I just realized like I wasn't doing best by kids and I can't keep doing a profession where my goal should be to do what's best for kids and then know every day that the actions I'm taking in my classroom isn't what's best for kids. So it's a really challenging reality to face, but I think it's really critical um, to recognize that if you're not pursuing, uh, you know, creating a learning environment that actually meets students' needs, then you're not really doing the profession in the first place. So I think it's really, really powerful to think about it that way. Yeah. I did want to say though, as much as I agree with the idea that the appetite for change is in some places has really gone up because we're we're facing all of these really interesting challenges because of the pandemic and then re-entering classrooms what at least i've observed in my own work coaching and training teachers is the level of exhaustion right now is so intense and so like teachers are just so tired and taxed that there's that's definitely taking away i think from some folks desire to you know 
pursue professional learning and like take those risks. It's like, I think there's this mode, at least last year, where it just felt like it was, everybody's just treading water, trying to keep their heads above water. And the idea of doing anything new or anything different was almost like too much to even consider. Totally. And how do you think about that? Because I think that's actually, I mean, incredibly true. Um, I know how exhausting teaching is. So what do you say to a teacher who goes, hey, I'm, I'm exhausted, and but they're, they're teaching traditionally, right? So they're going to go back into a classroom environment that looked like probably what our classrooms felt like before we innovated, right? Our first few years. What do you say to a teacher in that in that position? Um, I'm, I have some ideas about how I communicate about it, but I'm curious how you think about working with that educator who's like, yes, I get what you're saying, but I really don't have any energy. Yeah. It's interesting because I really felt all this last year and even the year before, I really felt like I was holding a life preserver. <laughs> and I just wanted to like throw it to these teachers who are treading water, but it was like they were so busy treading water, they couldn't grab the life preserver that would have helped them to take a deep breath and have a little space to kind of do this work in a way that was fulfilling. And so when I work with teachers, I'm like, I get it. You're exhausted, but you're exhausted because you're the one doing the lion's share of the work, the lion's share of the thinking um, in this class. And What's the only way, honestly, to find any semblance of balance in this profession is to partner with students. If we don't see students as true and capable partners who can do things like lead a discussion, assess their own work, give feedback to their peers, um, you know, set their own goals, then it's like, we're never going to find balance because the numbers just don't work in our favor. You're an elementary teacher. It's one to 30. You're a secondary teacher. It's one to 60 or set 160, 170 students. So I'm like, we have to reimagine these traditional workflows that are teacher led, time consuming and ineffective through a student led lens, not just because we're tired and we don't want to do all the work, but because when we start to share the responsibility of learning with students, their experience is so much richer. And I'm not saying there isn't a definite kind of onboarding um, hill that you go up when you partner with students because they're not used to taking such an active role in their education. But at the end of the day, that's how we find more balance in this work. That's how we engage learners on a really deep level. So it's, there's no easy answer to this question, but I think that partnership piece is critical. I totally agree. You know, one thing I often say is, look, ultimately, when you really think about it, nothing is more exhausting than doing something that doesn't work repeatedly. Oh, so true. Right? Like, I find it way more energizing to do things that are really hard and take a ton of time, but I know work than to do one thing that doesn't work more than one time, right? If I have to re keep doing something that isn't working, that I know isn't working, I really start to lose it. And it doesn't, it doesn't take that much time for me to feel that like, ah, I got to get out of here. And that's, you know, for me, when I think about traditional teaching, it was that behavior management stuff. I'm sitting there and I'm delivering lectures and every single lecture, I'm like looking around and I got three or four behavior problems I'm trying to correct for. And then I'm getting a back and forth of the student. The student's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So that's why I'm talking to my friend. And I'm like, well, just listen harder. And it's like, that's really terrible. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, you know, you do that once and you go, that wasn't fun. You do it four times a day and you're like, I cannot 
keep doing this, right? So um, my advice for educators in that scenario, when you're really tired and really burnt out is just, look, I know this isn't easy, but I actually think what gives people the most energy is when they start to do things that that actually create change and work because it creates that kind of hopeful energy and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Because when you do invest the time and energy on the front end to really invest in that learning design, then you ultimately create classrooms that, like you said, are in partnership with students that oftentimes are student-led and that reduce the workload for you. So there's a light at the end of the tunnel too. I think ultimately you can't avoid the workload. It is challenging um, to create a really effective student-centered blended learning environment like a modern classroom. You've got to invest in learning design. You've got to invest in the front-end planning. I know you and I have talked about that endlessly. Um, it's everything. Oh, my gosh. It Absolutely. It's critical. And what what's so interesting is how many teachers are like, I just I don't have time for the design. I just can't. And I'm thinking, what are we doing then? And I think that there are all of these tasks that teachers take outside of the classroom hours, like giving feedback and grading that consume so much time and energy that they, they don't feel they have the time for the design work. So then that ends up with them standing at the front of the room saying maybe the same thing multiple times in front of multiple groups of students and dealing with those behaviors that you just described, where I'm like, okay, let's just acknowledge what technology does really well, right? Technology does information transfer really well. So yes, you're going to have to invest a little time to make, say, a video or to curate resources so students can explore and discover. But then you're going to be freed in the classroom to do other things. And maybe those other things could be pulling feedback, pulling assessment into the classroom space and having those be opportunities to connect with learners and actually develop our relationship with learners because the feedback is happening as they're working. The assessment is happening with them sitting right next to you. So they understand why they're getting certain scores. So yeah, we're never going to escape the fact that this profession has a pretty intense workload. But what we can do is decide where certain tasks happen and be much more intentional about the work that we're doing, whether it's design or what we're grading and why we're grading it. I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. Um, I want to talk briefly about that third theme, which is this realization you know, so first you're going, okay, this doesn't work. Then you're going, got to take risks. And then once you take those risks in the classroom, there's this sudden realization. And I think it, I really like the way you describe it, that suddenly you realize like students can take ownership of their learning and you can be in partnership with them. And it's really interesting because in that process for me, and it sounds like for you too, there's an aha moment that your assumptions about students were actually not accurate. And I'd like to just like understand more what you felt like happened there and where those assumptions came from in that, you know, for some reason over the course of your first three years in a classroom, it sounds like our first four and same thing for me, we had a notion of what teaching and learning could look like in the students role in that that was inaccurate. So what was inaccurate and what kind of made you realize that there was something powerful that can be done that put students in the driver's seat? Yeah, I think I definitely entered the teaching profession. So I was 22 when I started teaching. So I was super green, super young. And yet I felt a lot of pressure to basically know everything, to have all the answers. Because if I didn't have the answer to a question that was asked, I had somehow failed my students. And in reality, back when I started teaching, I didn't have any computers or devices. So if I didn't know the answer and we couldn't look it up in a book, then it was kind of like they had to wait 
I had to go home. I had to do some research. I had to figure it out and come back the next class and answer it. So there was this pressure to be kind of this fountain of knowledge when in fact there was just a ton of things I had no idea about, right? And I think as technology started to trickle into my room, there was this true realization that like, I don't have to have all the answers. And actually, maybe my value in this room isn't being a fountain of knowledge. Maybe it is just being a human who can organically respond to other humans' needs in a more facilitation role. And so I started to position learners to investigate, to question, to discover, to collaborate, to share. And they got excited about being able to discover and to be able to make meaning for themselves. And I just watched the energy in the room just it was just transformative for me to see how capable they were. I mean, as I, I just felt like as soon as I got out of their way, they ran with the learning and they were so excited. And those those scenes I had dreamed about in credential school, kids sitting in circles on the floor having conversations and engaging in collaborative tasks, like it was happening every single day in my classroom. And it was so incredibly exciting. And I realized how capable they they are. And for me, I think that recognition and, – and it's hard sometimes when I work with teachers where they're like, well, kids just won't do that. And I'm like, well, is it just that we haven't given them an opportunity yet? Because I think they will. I think they can. Totally. and Well, and I think kids just won't do that um, frustration is a real one. Like I think it's nonsense to ignore that, right? Because to some degree – it is one of the most challenging parts of teaching, right? To stimulate motivation in students. But with that being said, when kids won't do something, the solution is not to hold their hand, um, right? And that's to me where I think that misconception that I developed in my first few years of teaching stemmed from, right? It was like, I can go in two directions here when a student isn't engaging in the work. Direction one is I'll just basically create an absurd amount of coddling conditions to get them across the finish line. Or I can face that challenge and say, look, you have to engage in this work and I'm going to continue to give that responsibility to you. I'm going to give you supports and constraints and structures. But the notion that somehow because you won't do it, I will essentially do it for you in so many ways is not an option. I think it's convenient and it's logical in the early stages to go, well, I'll just get, I'll just do more of it for you, right? I'm telling you to do, you know, 30% of this. Um, now I'm going to tell you to only do 20% of this when really the goal should actually be to, to teach them how to take that ownership because without that, they just won't be successful outside of our classrooms, which I think is critical. Let's talk a little bit about what you think a really high quality learning environment has like what are what are some key ingredients there and then i want to talk a little bit about its connection to, to our model at the modern classrooms project so when you think about a high quality classroom like what are some key elements that stand out to you so when i talk about blended learning for educators i tend to focus on these three what you i'll call them pillars of like really strong blended learning and I always frame it in a way so teachers understand the teacher pain points that these things can address as well as the benefits for students. So the first is there has to be student agency. Students have to be able to make meaningful choices in the learning environment, about the learning experience. And the teacher pain point this addresses is teachers' frustration that students aren't engaged and they're not motivated. And I very gently kind of highlight when I work with teachers that autonomy and agency 
are critical to motivation. If we want to motivate students, we have to give them a degree of agency. And so many of our kids have been going through school where they don't get to make any decisions. They don't decide what they learn, how they learn, what they create to demonstrate their learning. It is a very powerless position and it hurts their motivation over time. So the more we can build those meaningful choices into the learning environment, the more confident students are going to be that they can navigate complex tasks successfully, that they can learn through a lens of interest. So student agency is one. The second kind of pillar is consistent and effective differentiation. So really thinking about the diversity of skills and needs and language proficiencies, learning preferences, interests in a classroom, and how are we designing to better meet the needs of specific groups of learners. And the teacher pain point that this really addresses is just every year in education, the spectrum of need in our classrooms just gets wider and wider and wider. And it is daunting as a single person or a teacher to try to design to meet the diversity of need. And it's really hard if the only model we're using is that whole group teacher-led, teacher-paced model. So how are we designing to create more opportunities to work with small groups of learners, adjusting the level of you know complexity or rigor and prompts and problems, the scaffolds and supports? Like How can we make sure every student is making progress toward firm standard-aligned goals? The third is control over pace. And this really does begin to address that teacher pain point of unproductive behaviors and classroom management challenges because not all, but a lot of those behaviors blossom out of this misalignment between the pace at which the learning is moving and the pace at which the learn, the learning needs to move for the individual learner. So if it's going too quickly, they get frustrated, they might not feel valued, and they disengage. If it's moving too slowly, they get bored, they make their own fun, they disengage. So are we architecting learning experiences that really allow students a high degree of control over the pace at which they consume information, process that information, navigate multi-step tasks. And obviously this is where the modern classroom is like really shines is in these three areas, which is obviously why I'm so excited to talk with you about it. Yeah. I was going to say, Hey, can you explain the connection to the modern classrooms? And I was like, I don't actually think you need to explain the connection (laughs) because it's incredible how aligned we are on that fundamentally, which I think is really, really powerful. Um, you know, I I don't want to, I'm paying attention to time. Um, I want to just talk briefly now about what you tell educators who are making the leap into this work. Um, What's your piece of advice as they dive into this challenging work, as they say, look, I'm ready to change the game. I'm in that risk-taking spot, right? I I figured it out. It's not working. Like, I'm there. Um, But it's time for me to actually get started, and I don't actually know where to start. Because I do think that's a really, really big barrier is how to get off the ground. Um, and I even talk about this in my work too. A lot of folks will ask me, well, you had an idea to scale an organization, but like, how did you actually, like, what did you do first, right? Like, did you buy a box and like fill it with stuff? Did you make a slide deck? Like, what, like, what is it that you actually start to do? Um, when you think about an educator who's there on the fundamental ideas of, hey, this isn't working, but then needs that structure to, to get going, 
where would you tell them to start or how would you tell them to kind of get going? So I almost always end every single workshop I lead with some advice. And the first thing I always say is think big, get excited, start small, right? This was a journey for me. This was a a 10 year journey, right? So none of this happened overnight. And I know teachers, when you get to that place of being kind of fed up with the status quo and how things have been done, you know, it's not working, you're in the risk taking, you just want everything to change all at once. And the reality is that probably isn't how most people are going to create sustainable change in their classrooms. So, you know, if we think about it through the lens of those pillars of student agency, differentiation, control over pace that I talked about, I think, you know, one of the things I encourage teachers to do to kind of start small, but begin to give students agency is just using kind of a would you rather approach to giving students one meaningful choice in every lesson. And it could be a content choice. It could be a process choice. It could be a product choice, right? About what they're doing. And just start to see how that simple choice starts to impact students and the way they approach the learning. Um, when it comes to differentiation, you know, I'll, I'll encourage teachers, the best way to do that, I think, in the early stages is small group instruction, small group interactive modeling, and And pulling that into a teacher-led station. So maybe we start to play with like the station rotation model. Um, So you have that opportunity to support small groups of learners. When it comes to control over pace, it's starting to think about, could I create a a choice board or maybe like a hyperdoc just for the day to let students self-pace through a lesson? And I could be freed to kind of pull individuals or, or pairs or small groups. And I think the more teachers kind of start small, one strategy, one model, focusing on one of those pillars, then it's like they have some success on which they can build. One of the things that's kind of heartbreaking is I have seen some teachers who, you know, they'll try to implement right out the gate, like a a blended learning model where they're trying to make sure the kids have agency, it's differentiated, and they have control over pace, at least in part. And then it kind of doesn't go well because we forget that when we try something new, it's like we're that first year teacher again. We're going to make mistakes. It's not going to go perfectly out of the gate and that has to be okay. And instead of letting that deflate us or frustrate us to the point where we're not going to continue innovating, it's like use that feedback loop from students. Start having those conversations. See them as your partners who can give you, you know, real thoughtful feedback on what worked and what didn't work and what they think might work better next time. So think big, start small, don't be afraid to fail and really gather that feedback from your students and, and try to use that feedback to continue to iterate and improve. I love that. And I, and I, you know, I think one of the ways that listeners know that they started with this was that they also were just able to digest our free course. Like it gives them some place to start. And in there, there's all these different small ways to get things off the ground and running. You know, we're going to be collaborating, you and I, as well as Modern Classrooms and and Catlin Tucker's work over the course of the next few months. So folks, listeners should expect to hear more from Catlin uh, and sharing just how our model aligns to, to what Catlin has been doing for years in this work to really figure out what it means to develop and run high quality blended learning environments. Catlin, if folks want to hear more or learn more from you, what, what's the best place for them? Like where, where should they go? 
If you go to CatlinTucker.com, it's kind of your one-stop shop. So I blog almost every week. I try to make it very teacher-friendly, lots of templates and strategies. You can, if you're interested in any of my books or my courses, they're all available there. So CatlinTucker.com and you'll find whatever you need. Perfect. Well, Catlin, I can't think of a better way to record our 100th episode than to have (laughs) one of the biggest experts in the game on here chatting with me. Thank you so much for your time. We're going to be collaborating a ton more. Don't be surprised if you're on our mailing list and you see an awesome blog from Catlin come out. There's going to be webinars that Catlin's hosting with our team. Uh, We're extremely excited about this collaboration, and I hope listeners were able to gather some fabulous and valuable insights. I know I certainly did. Thanks, Catlin. Absolutely. My pleasure. Awesome. All right. That is it. That's the end of our 100th episode. You will be joined again by Zach and Tony Rose and other fabulous guests in the coming weeks. And I'll be back at it next month recording another episode um, in September. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast.